passing means just not revealing the polyamorous aspect of the family constellation by not emphasizing the amorous or sexual part of the adult relationships or by disguising multiple parenthood. It's kind of disguising the fact that maybe different kids in this household have different parents. This is generally regarded as the most suitable response to protect the family unit and the well-being of the younger children was what they found in this meta-analysis. And then bordering, which was described as mediating carefully the different behavioral requirements and or possibilities of different public and private spheres. I see. So yeah, the idea of this is what we can talk about at school. This is what we can talk about at home. This is what yep. we can talk about when we go to Mima's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Good old exactly. Mima. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Emory Podcast, we are continuing our review of some of the latest research from the past few years about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. Last week, we looked at some studies about the demographics of who's doing non-monogamy, reasons why people are pursuing it, as well as looking at measures of the health of some of those relationships and different types of non-monogamous relationships. And this week, we're going to be continuing by talking about a few more really important topics, such as mental health and non-monogamy, sexual health and non-monogamy, and the health of children and adults in non-monogamous families. So this episode is going to be all research all the time, baby. Yeah. We're going to go through one study at a time, and I'm going to give the same caveats as we gave in part one, which is that we're going to be very careful to clarify uh, correlation versus causation. Sometimes when people are talking about studies, uh, that doesn't necessarily get included. And just to clarify that correlation means that we're observing two different factors and we're noticing a particular pattern that maybe as one increases, we notice a decrease in the other factor, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the increase in one factor caused the decrease of the other factor. So just something to be careful there that sometimes people get a little bit too excited and jump to saying, ah, clearly something empirically causes this thing when maybe the research doesn't actually make that clear. Another thing worth mentioning in this is that as we've pointed out many, 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 many times throughout many episodes on this show, the research on relationships in general, but especially about non-monogamy, uh, does, just does not have a lot of diversity in it yet. Researchers are still trying to figure out how to diversify their samples, things like that. Um, so, so anyway, just to understand that these studies tend to be primarily white people, um, tend to be cisgender, uh, but but that's hopefully something that is continuing to change over time. But anyway, just sort of as a general caveat for all of these, that is still an issue with a lot of research just in general, but especially on this topic. 
And it's super exciting to be presenting all of this relatively new research. Uh, Bear in mind that in a few years' time, some of this may become irrelevant, or new research may come out that, that shows contradictory results or contradictory suggestions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the whole point of research and creating new studies is to keep refining and keep expanding our understanding of different topics and different phenomena. And remember that science and studies don't prove anything. Be suspicious if anyone waves a study in your face and tries to say, ah, this, this clearly scientifically proves (laughs) such and such fact. That's not really the purpose of science. Right. I think something worth worth noting too is when a study comes out and shows something, right? Generally some kind of correlation between, okay, we've noticed that when this thing's higher, this other thing's also higher for people. Uh, we notice correlation. And then someone else will have another study that again, the headline is like, this new study came out that disproved this other mm-hmm. one. And again, it's like, that's not that's kind of missing the mark of the way that research works too. That really it's about, okay, we did a study a little bit differently, maybe trying to be similar to this other one, or maybe just sort of related that got results that seem to be the opposite, or we didn't get any results. Why is that? It's all just sort of leading to more questions of, okay, well, how can we continue to refine this to figure out where these answers are. Was there a problem in the first study? Was there a problem in the second one? Do they both have different problems? You know, that that's why studies will try to do the same thing or related things to other studies, because that's how we develop that knowledge, not by just studying something once. And it's like, yep, proven, moving on to the next. All right. So with that, let's hop into our first topic here, which is non-monogamy and mental health. And I'm just going to quickly talk first about a study that did not make it into this episode that seemed so promising. And this study was called Mental Well-Being in Polyamorous and Monogamous Relationship. And this was published in the Journal of Indian Psychology. And in this one, the researchers were looking at individuals in polyamorous and monogamous relationships and trying to see if there was any difference in mental health. Specifically, their hypothesis was that there would be no difference. Uh, and in their study, they actually found that the non-monogamous people, the polyamorous people, showed higher markers of mental health than the monogamous ones. However, their study was very small. It was only 60 individuals. And that they were only looking at their well-being over the past two weeks, which oh. is really not that indicative of you know, your overall mental health. And it was all self-reporting. So it's just enough problems with it that we're like, this just really isn't rigorous enough to it's, you know, maybe it's interesting and something for future research, but on its own, it's a good example of something that's okay. This is cool. Something interesting to think about. Let's design some more studies, but it by itself is not even enough to be worth really, really talking about and entertaining in this episode. The study that we do want to talk about that is on non-monogamy and mental health was published in 2021 by our friend Ryan Witherspoon, who actually came on the show way back in episode 125 to talk about this study when it was kind of in the works, which is kind of, it's amazing how long it takes (laughs) to get a study together and then to finally publish it. That's really extraordinary. It's called Exploring Minority Stress and Resilience in Polyamorous, in a Polyamorous Sample. 
and it was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. So the background of this is that they wanted to look at what factors make non-monogamous people more resilient to the everyday stress and discrimination they experience based on their consensually non-monogamous identity. And the convenience sample was 1,246 U.S. adults. They filled out an online survey. The mean age was 37. There were about twice as many women as men, as well as 125 trans or non-binary participants. And 55.7% of the participants identified as bisexual. So if overall they were trying to figure out what factors make non-monogamous people more resilient, they had to ask specific questions to try to determine that. And one of the kind of bullet points was they were trying to figure out how to determine minority stress and looked at things like discrimination. They asked some yes or no questions, which included things like, have you ever been demoted or denied a promotion because you were consensually non-monogamous? Or have you ever lost custody of a child because you were consensually non-monogamous? Or have you ever been stereotyped by a mental health provider due to consensual non-monogamy? That's a really interesting one. Mm. I think those other ones look at much bigger things that might be happening in someone's life, by, but that stereotyped by a mental health provider, that can be a little bit more nuanced and specific. Yeah, that they're just kind of looking overall at a bunch of different types, mm-hmm. such as such as these. And it is, yeah, it is funny how big a difference there is between one yeah. and another. So they looked at social stigma on perhaps a Likert scale. So my family and friends approve of my relationship, you know, put a number between one and five, or I believe that most other persons whom I do not know would generally disapprove of my relationships, you know, look at how prevalent that is in their life or not. They also looked at things like outness, how out or not a person was, and also specifically looked at five traits of mindfulness. This is interesting. So they were looking specifically at how mindful a person was. Yeah, so this one's just general mindfulness, because that was part of the idea, was they're trying to determine you know, how much discrimination and minority stress does mm-hmm. a person experience, do, you know, do these people experience, but then also what other factors might they have that could help them combat that? And so they were looking at things like outness, yeah. How like mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? And and this one was from a pretty well-established mindfulness scale th- that's already been established that divides mindfulness into five separate you know, sub subcategories of mindfulness, which I actually thought was pretty interesting to look at the way that this has been divided up in research. Yeah, I'm not sure if we've discussed these five traits before, but they include things like observing. So like I noticed the smells and aroma of things, describing, essentially saying I'm good at finding words to describe my feelings, which we've talked about a lot on the show on most recently on episode 348, which was transforming feelings into words. Also acting with awareness. So I find myself doing things without paying attention. If if you said something along those lines, then you were negatively scored, things like that, or how aware are you of what you're doing and, and how you, I guess, respond or act. Also non-judging, that's a, a characteristic or a trait of mindfulness. So questioning like, I tell myself I shouldn't be feeling the way that I'm feeling. If you do that, then you're negatively scored as well. And also non-reactivity. So Mm. I watch my feelings without getting carried away by them. I guess that 
makes sense, especially looking at if you get emotionally charged by something, are you going to react negatively to that? Like, what are you outwardly doing based on whatever emotion you're feeling at that moment? Also, they looked at how connected they were to a supportive, consensually non-monogamous community. And overall, general psychological stress was measured with previously validated questions about both depression and anxiety. So potentially how depressed or anxious a person was, Mm -hmm. uh, they measured general psychological stress based on their answers to those things. Right. So then that general psychological stress was kind of the the main metric of, you know, this is how much stress this person's experiencing. And then they're looking at how does that relate to how much discrimination they experience and then mm-hmm. also what other factors they have, right? Like outness or mindfulness or a community. And, you know, is there a connection between these? You know, what mm-hmm. which ones affect which? What makes people more resilient and better able to handle that while experiencing less of that psychological stress? Right. And their overall findings included 61.6% reported experiencing at least one type of anti-CNM discrimination. At, at least one, that makes sense. Yeah, seems to track. Yeah, 44.5% reported experiencing at least two types. And minority stress was correlated with psychological stress. So, yeah, so they showed yeah. Like, yeah. the more discrimination you experience, the more psychological then you're going stress. To be, so that yes. makes sense, yeah. Also, increased mindfulness was shown to decrease the amount of psychological stress experienced for the same level of minority stress. I think we talk about that a lot on this show, how mindful or not you are. And obviously, that's perhaps a behavior that is learned or that you can develop over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people are really good at it immediately, and some people need to sort of understand and develop that. But Mm -hmm. that makes sense that it would reduce psychological stress. And having a positive self-identity with polyamory did not have a correlation with stress. That's really Mm. interesting. Yeah, that is really fascinating. So I feel like in part one, we were talking about people's ability to self-identify and their reasons for self-identifying and like what motivated that. And I guess it would be easy to come to the conclusion that like if you do have a positive self-identity attached to polyamory, maybe that would help you become less stressed or be more resilient. But it's interesting, they don't show a correlation necessarily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the hypothesis, was that Mm -hmm. that would would show up, but it didn't, at least in this study, which again, in this study. It doesn't necessarily mean anything specific, but yeah. But yeah. Uh, And also being connected to a polyamorous community did help reduce stress, but only by a little bit. Mm. I know, I mean, most people out there will say like, go find a community, that'll help. But interesting. And it does. Specifically. Yeah, but not maybe as much as you might think. Yeah. Overall mindfulness, specifically the describing scale, the acting with awareness, the non-judging, one's inner experience, and non-reactivity were found to be the most important aspects associated with resilience to stress in the face of discrimination. And that aligns with similar studies on lesbian, gay, and bisexual participants as well. Mm. That the mindfulness was a mitigating factor. So what I thought was really interesting about this one was just how important mindfulness is and that in reading this paper it was kind of cool because you know Ryan talked about you know, I had this whole hypothesis I you know put all these variables into the system and it and it wouldn't wouldn't resolve it wouldn't compute 
And so I was like, well, that, that didn't predict it the way I thought it did. So I had to go back, tweak some things. And that through adjusting that is kind of where he came to these you know, findings of what actually did have an effect and what didn't. And so it was interesting to kind of see in the paper him talking about, yeah, I had this hypothesis, but it didn't, it wasn't supported by this data. But then this thing that was part of my hypothesis ended up being like the main important part, the mindfulness, the mindfulness specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that the community was the other one that did correlate, but just not as strong as mindfulness. Hmm. But those were kind of the two, the two main ones that did correlate in the study. And I just thought that was kind of neat to see that process of, huh, you know, I'd love to do more research and see, you know, how can we refine this more? Because one thing he points out is they looked at, have you experienced discrimination or not? But th- it, it wasn't about how many times, how severe, you know, they, they weren't looking at that or like, how ongoing is it? How recent has it been? So that would be something for future research to get a little more nuanced in looking at what type of discrimination and, and to what degree people are experiencing it right. and whether that also correlates to, to some of these mitigating factors. I do think mindfulness, like as a term and as an idea, has very much come into the cultural zeitgeist recently. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if that is going to be a thing that if this study were to be redone or, you know, I guess expanded upon in a few years or in 10 years or whatever, if those findings would be similar or not, just because. I don't know. Mindfulness seems to be having a moment at this particular time and who knows what will happen, you know, with in the next decade or so. Or what will be next? Will it be the next trend? Exactly. Mental health care. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it is at least comforting to know that like, yes, it's a trend and we talk about it a lot, but there is research, not just this one, but several other studies this was based on that do kind of back up that that is important. So there's something there at least. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to switch gears, and now we're going to be looking at studies that focus on non-monogamy and sexual health in particular. So where we're going to start out is actually looking at a 2012 study, which is older than all the research that we've been talking about so far. But this is a study that we have referenced in passing on the podcast a number of times. We thought it'd be good to just kind of set the scene and give more details about this particular study. So this was conducted by Conley and Moores. It's titled unfaithful individuals are less likely to practice safer sex than openly non-monogamous individuals. It's published in the journal of sexual medicine. I feel like I don't even need to say anything for this study. It's like the title just says it (laughs) right right there. (laughs) But to give a little bit more context, basically the study aimed to compare the safer sex strategies of partners in. And this is interesting because I think because it's a slightly older study, they have slightly different terminology than what we see now. So they call it, quote, negotiated non-monogamous relationships or NN relationships. consensual, essentially. Yeah, I feel like now you'd probably say CNM, but that's what what they, that was... Negotiated, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's what they said back in 2012. So looking at people in NN relationships versus sexually unfaithful partners in monogamous relationships. So the way that they defined these things. So they defined sexual unfaithfulness as having vaginal or anal sex along with genital stimulation or using sex toys with someone other than the primary partner. So they made it very clearly about some kind of penetrative act, I suppose, occurring. Or genital stimulation. 
too. Yeah, so something so involving mortgage and sex toys. Yeah, yes. interesting. Yes, and then they define negotiated non-monogamy as having an open agreement with a primary romantic partner to have sex outside of the primary relationship. So that's also a very particular definition as well. Um, that could cover a lot of different situations. But basically for the study, they recruited 800 individuals. They ended up with specifically 308 sexually unfaithful individuals and 493 non-monogamous individuals uh, that made it to the survey stage. So they asked people questions about their safer sex strategies, including a frequency of condom and barrier use during intercourse, frequency of covering or sterilizing sex toys prior to sex, sexual interactions, which I love that they included that because I feel like that's one that a lot of people just don't even think about. They asked about their use of alcohol or drugs during their most recent extradiatic sexual encounter. They asked whether or not they had even discussed STI testing and sexual history with their other partner um, and also asked about disclosure to their primary partner. And so what they found was that sexually unfaithful individuals were less likely than the non-monogamous individuals to have used barriers of any kind for sex or to have sanitized or covered sex toys. And they also found that specifically, you know, the basically the people who were cheating were more likely to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And they were also less likely to have discussed SDI testing or sexual history. And they were significantly less likely to use barriers during intercourse. And this probably seems fairly obvious much less likely to have told their primary partner about the encounter. It's kind of the yeah. definition of them cheating, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's an interesting quote directly from the study. Quote, the current research provides suggestive evidence that people who are unfaithful to their monogamous romantic partners are perhaps riskier than prior research has ascertained. That is, the participants were not merely risky by virtue of being non-monogamous, but actually are riskier than those who participate in negotiated non-monogamy because of their lack of safer sex behaviors. So this one is an interesting one. Um, again, we need to talk about the limitations here that this was all self-reported data. So it's not as accurate as if we, for instance, actually checked STI testing <laughs> results or collected data. Actually watch them do watch doing their sex it, yeah. watch them doing it <laughs> to see what exactly they were doing or what conversations they were had. You know, we didn't look at this data over time to see if there were other patterns. So, so those are the things that are limiting this. Um, and it is interesting that, you know, the researchers were trying to figure out why unfaithful people would engage in these risky behaviors. And one reason that came up was that it could be about just the definition of monogamy itself, that perhaps, you know, sexual, as they call sexually infidelitous individuals may still consider themselves and their relationships to be monogamous. And because there is this cultural assumption that monogamy is just inherently safer, there may be some part of their brain that's able to justify their behavior by thinking that, well, I'm not the type of person who needs to use condoms. And that sounds silly. When I say it with my mouth, it sounds really silly. But then when I think about <laughs> my lived experience, <laughs> I'm like... Yes. But people do that all the time, right? Yeah. Like we're we're really bad at risk assessment, at objective risk assessment as human beings, and we're really motivated by our emotions. And 
I have seen a lot of people, and I've also been one of those people who make decisions about sexual health just based on does this seem like a trustworthy person hmm. or does this like, Oh, this seems like a nice person. They, they probably aren't lying to me about their sexual health status or, you know, like, like we do all these weird things, especially when we're caught up in the moment. And especially I think if you're in the context of like, I'm potentially cheating on someone, you know, like talk about a quote unquote crime of passion where, yeah, I do think that like our emotions can get in the way and just make this fuzzier. Absolutely. Yeah. This is kind of the gold standard of the, I think that we use or that we talk about in non-monogamy to tell people like, no, actually those who are non-monogamous tend to be safer than people who are just cheating on a partner. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is the one that many people will go back to. But again, I would be really interested with the updated terminology. I, I think to go back and do a study like this today when I think perceptions have changed. Yeah. Who knows? I, that was, would be really interesting to get an update on this data. Well, it's funny you ask because I have another oh. study for you oh. here from 2019. By, and it's funny. So the same Conley from Conley and Moore's that did that one is involved in this one, which is by Rodriguez Lopez and Conley called Non-Monogamy Agreements and Safer Sex Behaviors, The Role of Perceived Sexual Self-Control. And this was published in Psychology and Sexuality. Perceived sexual self-control. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's so let's, let's define that. that. Even so, yeah. yeah, let's talk about it. So basically for this, um, kind of to start out, they wanted to look specifically at condom use for this because of all of the sort of safer sex practices out there. Generally, the research has shown that condom use is sort of the most bang for the buck in a way that it's, that it's one of the most effective ways, um, you know, in sex that involves penises, that condoms are the most effective versus least amount of effort way to, to have safer sex and still be able to have sex, right? So, so we're leaving out just things like you know abstinence or or whatever, and we're just going to focus on this one thing. So that was first piece is they wanted to focus on that. Second is they wanted to look at what are the circumstances where people engage in using condoms with their sex partners and do more positive attitudes toward condom use associate with more frequent actual use of them. And and better Positive negotiation attitudes. about them. Okay. Interesting. So not thinking that it's going to deter from the feelings involved in sex or whatever, or the sensation. Or the intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe also, and they, they didn't exactly specify this in, in the parts that I read, but um I think also the idea of like, oh, if I see using a condom in general as a positive thing just of like, oh, that's a good positive trait. I should do that. Will that mm. also make me more likely to do it? Mm. Uh, and then to go to Emily's question of what is perceived sexual self-control? And so for this study, what that means is how much that person feels like they are empowered to engage in behaviors that are less risky. Or, or to put it another way, like how much do they feel in control of how much risk they're taking when it comes to their sexual health? 
And and we'll kind of look at that a little bit when we get to the the questions section. Um, also, just for reference, this is a study that was all uh, Portuguese users, forty nine and under, uh, from a dating website in Portugal. Uh, it's five hundred and twelve people that were in this study, and uh, all under forty nine. Um, and a lot of them were men in this particular study, which is interesting because a lot of our other studies are pre- predominantly women. Mm. Um, so in any case, uh, to get into the questions here. Uh, so they asked things like, during your life, how many different partners have you had sex with only once? So basically, like, how many one-night one stands, stands have you had is what they were getting at. Uh, another one was, how often do you experience sexual arousal when you're in contact with someone that you're not in a committed relationship with? So just kind of sort of being like, how into casual sex are you? Like, how much do you, do you have a desire for it? Uh, how do you feel about condom use? Uh, using it every time you have casual sex? So again, trying to get those attitudes about condom use. Um, and then to get to that question of perceived sexual self-control... A question like, I find it easy to turn down unsafe sex, you know, agree or disagree, you know, a scale of one to seven or something like that. So it's kind of about that, like how empowered did they feel to be able to, you know, make decisions to influence their sexual health. Um, And then also things like how often did you discuss using condoms with casual partners in the last three months, right? So just kind of looking at all this stuff about like attitudes, actual use, number of sexual partners, things like that. And so here's some of their findings. First is that the lifetime number of casual partners and their desire for casual sex were positively associated with each other. Okay. <laughs> so no surprise <laughs> there. Sense. But the more into casual sex a person was, the more that more they had they had. More likely they were to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, but they also found that having more casual sex partners and being more into casual sex was negatively associated with perceived sexual control. So those people were were less likely, for example, to answer, I find it easy to say no to sex that seems unsafe to me. Hmm, right? so, okay. so they did find that, which fit with their hypothesis. Um, th- but they did find that perceived sexual control was positively associated with attitudes toward condoms and safer sex practices, both with the casual partners and with their primary partners. So that overall, they had higher feelings of sexual self-control if they had better attitudes toward condoms. So that, again, supports their hypothesis, but is a Mm -hmm. cool one to notice. Um, And then they also looked at the difference between the people in the study who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships and one who are in non-consensually non-monogamous relationships. So kind of like that last study, right? Right. Looking at cheating versus... Pre, pre-negotiated consensual non-monogamy. non-monogamy uh. And again, uh, tracking with the other study, they found that for consensually non-monogamous people, attitudes toward condom use were associated with higher sexual self-control more generally. Uh, they found that for non-consensually non-monogamous people, more positive attitudes toward condoms also associated with more sexual self-control, but less so which I think goes kind of reinforces that idea from the previous study of, well, if I'm kind of being illicit about this, even if I think condoms are good, I might be less likely to use it because then it involves more premeditation or mm. I can't justify it as much as like, oh, I was just in the moment or something like it's that. like, it how does, much am I going to lie to myself or not 
I don't know. Right. Like, a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. just like the cognitive dissonance. If I Absolutely. don't put a condom in my pocket, then perhaps I won't use it and perhaps I won't have sex with someone illicitly. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. was also part of what they looked at in this was um, part of that sexual self-control was things like bringing a condom with you. It's kind of that planning ahead, too, of feeling like I'm empowered to make decisions for this. So, yeah, that absolutely tracks. Mm. Um, and they found that that for the consensually non-monogamous people, the one little extra facet is that the people who had higher perceived self-control about sex also were more likely to use condoms with their primary partner or at least have those negotiations and conversations with them, which also, I mean, makes sense to me anecdotally and tracks with my own life. Uh, but it is interesting that just that they noticed that in this particular study, seeing that there. Hmm. Uh, now real quick, some limitations. One is that, you know, all of these are correlations, there's not causation, and that this study did not take into account the influence of the other partner. So mm, was there I condom see. use because the other partner insisted it or was because they wanted to? So they, yeah, they I guess didn't, that would change things. That would change things. Yeah, they didn't measure that. Um, and then um, they also found that the single people in the study in general felt like they had less sexual self-control over their risk than people who were in relationships. Mm. Um, but that it was like, regardless of if they used condoms the same amount as the people in relationships, that generally the single people perceived that they had less control over their sexual health or like less ability to say no or to prepare ahead of time for things, which was also just an interesting That's piece. Weird. They kind of threw in there at the end and I'm like, do more studies on that. Like, what do you, mm, what? Yeah. Like, I, it's all just like human perception. It's, which again is another reason why studies are not fact because mm -hmm. you're dealing with emotions here and that is not truth really. It just right. is. And right, it's something it's, interesting yeah. to talk about, but yeah, but that's it. So. Like you're trying to find facts to help understand our feelings. Yeah. You know, it's, they're, they're entwined. That You can't just separate them from each other. We're not all yeah. robots who just work by the numbers, right? Yeah. All right. So before we go on to another study about sexual health and then talk about non-monogamy and families and parenting, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show and to help us keep all of this information, which hopefully is helpful to all of you out there, to help keep this coming to everyone in the world for free on the podcast. We really appreciate your support. So please take a moment to check them out. And if there's any sponsors that seem interesting to you, maybe give them a visit using our links. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy, 
or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Alrighty, we're going to continue on with another sex study. This one is made by Conley yet again. My goodness, it's a 2018 study by Conley Piedmont Gusakova. Is that right? It sounds like a, a Russian <laughs> I thing. Say, I probably say Gusakova. Gusakova. Yeah. Gusakova and Ruben called sexual satisfaction among individuals in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships published in the journal of social and personal relationships. So this study engages with this broad cultural assumption that so many people have out there. The monogamous relationships are not only emotionally superior to CNM ones, but they are also more sexually satisfying and they pose less risk of STI transmission I am shocked by the amount of people out there who I listen to on more like, I guess, quote unquote, normal podcasts that essentially say (laughs) this thing. They're like, Mm. yeah, I've heard of polyamory or non-monogamy, but it doesn't work. It's it's not Mm. something that Mm -hmm. people actually do. So I love that they did a study on this. The lay perceptions of consensual and non-monogamy reveal certain stereotypes around why people may engage in consensual non-monogamy. Largely that people are not sexually satisfied by their primary partner and therefore seek non-monogamy. That's very interesting. And yeah, well, definitely from, something from that our, people would think. Yeah. From part one, it was like, that was one potential reason mm-hmm, that people found why people, why people might choose. But to it's do a that, lot more nuanced than just that. Yeah, it not, it's a lot not the more. only one. Definitely. Well, it was, yeah, it was one of the reasons, but also in those previous studies, it was an, like an interest in you know more varied sex or something like that came up a lot. But I think that a lot of people assume there's this implication of also then the sex you're having is not satisfying. Yeah. And so that's why you're seeking it out. And I think that's a little bit of a nuance there that I think they were trying to examine in this study. And also, yeah, just people being like, oh, well, you just don't want to settle down. How many people right, say that? Right. that yeah. All righty. Across two separate studies, researchers considered three kinds of consensual non-monogamy. So they considered swinging, they considered open relationships, and also polyamory in their analysis and their comparison to monogamy. Participants were recruited on websites and listservs to participate in an anonymous online survey, which included questions about sexual satisfaction and sexual frequency. So there were two studies. In the second study, researchers used a non-targeted sample of consensual non-monogamy participants to test for any bias in study one. So, you know, that people who are recruited specifically for their CNM identity may feel pressured to report a positive image of their relationship to researchers. That's something I think is understandable completely and a potential bias for a lot of these studies, maybe Mm -hmm. that, oh, I have to make this look really good because mm -hmm. otherwise people are going to look down upon it. 
Only CNN participants that reported having a primary partner were included in this study, largely to have a fair comparison with monogamous couples. I guess that makes sense, even though, as we know, this uh, includes yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. yeah different nuances, not just people with primary partners. So again, there were two studies. The first one included 1,507 monogamous people and 617 CNM people. So among those CNM participants, 51% were polyamorous, 25 were in a swinging relationship, and then 25 were in an open relationship. And this first study, the participants had been in their relationships for an average of 10 years. It's a long time. Yeah. Also, the second study included... 1,177 monogamous people and 510 consensually non-monogamous people. And in this study, of the participants who were consensually non-monogamous, 52% were polyamorous, 30% were in open relationships, and 18% were swingers. And the average relationship there was about five years, which is interesting. So, Yeah. It is interesting that overall, of the non-monogamous people, half in both studies were polyamorous. Were polyamorous, yeah. And then swinging and open together made up the other half. Yeah, very um, interesting. Probably having to do with recruitment, or maybe just how people how out identify, they or how yeah. out, or yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah. It's an interesting question. So the main research question of this was, do people in consensually non-monogamous relationships experience similar sexual satisfaction to those in monogamous relationships? And participants rated their satisfaction on a seven-point scale uh, about the following four dimensions of their sexual experience with their partner. And those included how frequently they had sex with their partner, how much physical pleasure they experienced during their sexual encounters, how much physical physical pleasure their partner experiences. That's interesting. And I wonder, that's just like perceived, I'm assuming. Right. And then how they feel after the sexual encounter. And they also responded to prompts, yeah, about the last encounter they had with their partner, whether or not they had an orgasm during that last encounter and the frequency of sex in an average week. Hmm. And study one and two used the same set of questions. So in the first study... They found that consensually non-monogamous individuals reported higher levels of sexual satisfaction on various measures, which included sexual satisfaction overall, the sexual satisfaction in their last encounter, and also the fact that they had an orgasm, but not in sexual frequency. That's interesting. So Hmm. they may have a similar amount of sexual frequency as those who were monogamous in the study. Yeah, and I think that they were asking specifically about with their primary partner mm-hmm. yeah. in this, right? So this was about kind of showing... So it's kind of similar, perhaps, yeah. to right. like a monogamous relationship in that facet. Right, yeah. yeah. I, so polyamorous people recorded reported significantly higher sexual satisfaction overall, as well as higher sa- sexual satisfaction after the most recent sexual encounter than the monogamous individuals did. They also reported orgasming in their last encounter 84% of the time, more than monogamous people, which reported 72%. They also, oh, interesting, people in open relationships and monogamous people reported equivalent levels of sexual satisfaction, but more people in open relationships reported orgasming during their last encounter. And swingers reported greater sexual satisfaction both with their sex lives overall and in their most recent encounter than monogamous people. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, 
I think mostly the findings say that it's higher sexual satisfaction overall. And it looks like study two replicated some of the findings of sex of study one, essentially that the non-monogamous participants had higher levels of sexual satisfaction. They also had the presence of an orgasm and they had more frequent sex than monogamous participants. That was interesting because the first yeah. one, it, it didn't say it was more, but then in the second study, it was a little bit more than the well, monogamous participants. The first one, I think, was specifically about polyamorous people, and this seems to mm. lump everyone together here. Right. Yeah. Right. I, and I, they do say that especially swingers had sex yes, a lot more often. Okay. That makes sense, right. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> They're seeking it out specifically, perhaps. Right. It's important to note that monogamous people didn't appear to be dissatisfied with their sex lives, simply that they had slightly lower levels of sexual satisfaction. Yeah, it's good to clarify that there. Yeah. That it doesn't necessarily mean that all the monogamous people are hating their sexual right. partners. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, there is a quick quote right here, which I found interesting. The most straightforward possibility is that CNM people are less subject to normal habituation processes that occur in the sexual relationships of monogamous people. Perhaps the introduction of additional partners provides enough variety and affects higher levels of satisfaction in the primary relationship. So essentially it's just, I think saying maybe the fact that more or different people come around sexually, then that means that overall you're going to be more satisfied. Yeah. That, that it kind of keeps things newer. So you're not yeah. following into the same patterns or things like that. And the they idea. ask, yeah, they ask that question. Can the addition of partners sometimes revive a struggling sexual partnership? Perhaps. And some people definitely introduce additional partners. And before that very reason, yeah, I do think this is a cool study that it does point out that idea of if you think people are non-monogamous because they're not having good sex in their primary relationship and they need to get it somewhere else, that actually the data doesn't back that up. That mm -hmm. they may be having better sex with that primary partner or or at least as good, right? But basically saying the assumption is the opposite of what the yeah. evidence seems to suggest. So that's I do think that's really interesting. So now we're going to switch gears once again and talk about all of these studies on non-monogamy and parenting. Really fascinating stuff. So this first one I'm going to dive into is from 2021, conducted by Manley and Goldberg, titled Consensually Non-Monogamous Parent Relationships During COVID-19. Oh, great. Super great. Uh, this was published in the journal Sexualities. So this specific study was focused on how parents who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships uh, perceived and negotiated risk, how they describe the pandemic's impact on their relationships and well-being, and also how parents' behavioral responses to the pandemic resisted or reproduced heteronormativity. Super interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so the framework for understanding these relationships and also the family configurations um, was queer theory. And so to clarify that a little bit, basically queer families, according to this framework, are those that resist binaries of gender, sexuality, and also just our common definitions of family or of nuclear families in general. So uh, this is what they said in the study, quote, parents who engage in consensually non-monogamous queer family when they include members who are not biologically or legally connected and they queer sexuality when they form relationships with more than one person, 
disentangle romantic, sexual, and co-parenting relationships and include same-gender partners. So uh, this is, I think, the more science-y, jargony version of a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show, which can include, for instance, relationship anarchist relationships, queer platonic relationships, alternate family structures, maybe choosing to co-parent with someone who's not necessarily a romantic or sexual partner or choosing to co-parent with multiple partners. So it sounds like they're trying to um, include all of that within this particular framework. So basically the participants in this study, there were 70 total, so a relatively smaller sample size than what we've been looking at. And they just completed an online survey, a 60-minute online survey. So interestingly, in the demographic breakdown, actually a majority, so 66% were cis women. And then um, also specifically, they noticed they noted that this was a relatively affluent group that ended up uh, participating here. So the mean household income was $97,882. So some of the questions that they asked included, you know, how has COVID-19 and guidelines around social distancing impacted your intimate relationships and family life? Do you spend more or less time with romantic or sexual partners, with co-parents or with your children? And how has your family been affected by the COVID-19 situation? Now, this is really interesting because, I don't know, I feel like I also conducted my little like one person study just through my coaching <laughs> practice. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, not only for myself, but through, through my coaching clients, right? A lot of people who are both uh, parents and queer and non-monogamous and all those things. And and I know I could definitely see some particular anecdotal trends. So let's see what this particular study found. So they found that there was a decline in physical contact with non-nested partners, which seems to make sense. I think we saw a lot of that in the non-monogamous community, like especially in the early days of the pandemic, where Specifically, they found that parents who lived alone appeared to suffer more from isolation, whereas those who lived in multi-adult households were more likely to uh, to discuss the strain of sharing time and space and also a desire for more alone time. And yeah, I feel like those yeah. are the two camps that I saw almost right yep. away was Absolutely. like, please get out of my face yeah. or I have no one to connect to yeah. at all. Yes, yeah. yes, completely. So they also noticed that people had to create some interesting strategies for being able to connect with people over a distance, including virtual dates, um, including things like quarantining for two weeks before and after seeing other partners. I saw yeah. all kinds of really creative and sometimes very complex solutions mm -hmm. that people came up with. They found that there was increased parenting responsibility. Again, makes sense when all your kids are suddenly having to be at home all of the time. They noticed that there was an increase in um, negotiating risk, which often included things like, like not choosing to not date new people or navigating the tensions that emerged from having different risk tolerance profiles. I yeah, I swear to God, this was just like everything that I was seeing in my own mm -hmm. coaching practice, the, like all the stuff that people were facing. And then interestingly enough, they also noticed a lot of changing dynamics and configurations at home. So things like partners moving in together during quarantine, um, you know, the nuclear family home is being challenged by having more than two parents in the same home or people who created multi-household quarantine pods. And so here's an interesting quote from the study. Quote, these pods often contained more individuals than just partners and children, including neighbors, other relatives, other housemates, and friends. And they also noticed that 
basically, you know, active communication, especially about negotiating risk tolerance, was a central feature of CNM relationships, which facilitated the process of navigating relationships during the pandemic. And then lastly, they found that in some cases, um, parents had to choose to create more distance from their children. So in, for, for instance, parents decided to have their children temporarily stay with other caretakers, especially if the parents were frontline workers or if the parent desired for the child to spend time with other family members or the other co-parent. Wow. Yeah. So I feel it like a lot of this... ideal. <laughs> right. Or meaning like all of this, the opportunity to have more people in your sphere mm -hmm. during this really challenging time, especially at the beginning. Yeah. Right. And this kind of gets echoed in this next study that's not specifically about the pandemic. Uh, and this next one is a 2021 study by uh, Landry, Arsenault, and Darling. It's called, quote, It's a Little Bit Tricky, colon, Results from the Polyamorous Childbearing and Birth Experiences Study also known as polybabes. Wow. Polybabes. <laughs> polybabes. That was great. Okay. Well, so far they win the award for, for titling. For, for titling, yes. Yeah. All right. So this was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And the main objective of this study was to look at the differences in the experiences of polyamorous people in Canada during pregnancy and birth. Uh, basically saying there's almost no literature about this at all. So let's start making some. So this one, uh, similar to the last one, is a relatively small uh, qualitative study. So this just had 24 participants who were interviewed. That include 11 birthing people and 13 partners of birthing people. Uh, the mean age was 34. So, you know, kind of in those prime childbearing years, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So, so basically they, they had two main questions that guided the interview, but it was a qualitative study, right? So it kind of depended what they talked about, what sorts of questions they asked. So the main one was, tell us about your relationship structure now and during your pregnancy and the birth. And then to tell us about your pregnancy and birth experience. And then from there, they, they would ask sort of follow-up questions, things about disclosure, things about their experiences with healthcare providers, uh, whether they intend to get pregnant again in the future or what they might do differently, um, and then various you know, definitions of terms that they brought up during their explanations. And overall, what they found was that, that, that overall, there was a lot of conscientiousness about family planning among these polyamorous participants. So they reported having lots of discussions about roles and parenting and to what extent different partners are going to co-parent or not, that there was a lot of these conversations in advance. Um, also, a lot of thoughtful planning around sexual health as some partners intentionally tried to get pregnant with one partner but not another. Which kind of oh. makes sense, right? Yeah, it's, well, maybe yeah. this one wants to be pregnant or have a kid with this one, but but not this other, and so they had to be very intentional right. about how do you you know how do you manage that? How do you make sure that happens? Yeah. Um, and then in general, they also all of the participants reported feeling more supported through their pregnancy and childbirth because of having more partners. Hmm. That basically everyone reported having partners with different skill sets was a big benefit and that just overall time and labor constraints were better or were, were easier having more partners as an asset. 
So uh, a, a little quote from that study here is that the participants described planning pregnancies, parenting on purpose, and spending quality time with their children. In cases where participants had older children already, they described these kids as well-adjusted, open-minded, and effective communicators. Overall, the impact of being polyamorous and potentially of having multiple partners was a positive one on fetuses, babies, and children. <laughs> and so, so anyway, I just thought that one was sort of a cool overall look at that. Again, has, has more to do, more to be done here. So our final two studies are actually meta-analyses. This first one is a 2020 meta-analysis of existing research by Pallada Chiaroli, chef, who I believe is that the is one and only Eli, Eli. Chef, yep. yes. chef, Mountford, Goldberg, and Allen, called Polyamorous Parenting in Contemporary Research, published in the book LGBTQ Parent Families, colon, Innovations in Research and Implications for Practice. Now, the four issues that frame the academic and social conversations around polyfamilies include, first, erasure of polyfamilies in academic discourse, and that continues to reflect and influence the sim similar ignorance of polyfamilies in social, legal, health, and educational realms. Also, exclusion by inclusion and the gap in theorizing and data about polyfamilies is sometimes addressed by utilizing research about the experiences of children from same-sex parent families. And this is problematic because the experiences of children in polyfamilies are unique, and it's not, you know, not all of them are same-sex. Like yeah, you could just substitute one minority totally, group for another yeah, and say, oh, yeah, strange. it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, absence of intersectionality, which happens all over the place here. Most participants in polyfamily research continue to be white, middle-class, college-educated individuals who identify as cisgendered male or female and who have high levels of cyber literacy, which allows them to participate in social and support groups and thereby find themselves participating in our research. I appreciate that they looked at that and that they realized that and talked about it. Also, there is a lack of longitudinal research and, quote, erasure and exclusion is the absence of the perspectives, experiences, and insights of children and adults who have grown up in polyfamilies, as well as the ways in which growing up in polyamorous household affect children's well-being, later relationships, and education. Now, we know that Eli Sheff is, what, the only person or one of the only people doing longitudinal studies on polyfamilies? Right. And that all of hers is more sort of sociological, qualitative, just like getting to know the families yeah, over interviews. many years. Yeah. It, so it's a different type of study. But but yeah, she's kind of the only one doing that particular type of research that I yes. know of. So we'll talk about her longitudinal polyamorous family studies. Uh, she interviewed 206 people in polyamorous families and 37 of those people were children. And some of the results included, quote, indicate these parents tend to employ a free-range parenting style, sustain per permeable family boundaries, and use flexibility to create resilience over time. And also, Chef's emerging findings continue to indicate that polyamorous families, while not perfect, can be a positive environments that support adults across the lifespan and raise confident, healthy children. Which yeah. we've talked to her about before on the show. Definitely. But basically, just, just overall that people are flexible and raise good kids yeah. <laughs> in polyamorous families. We appreciate all of the work that she's doing for sure. 
In addition to the Eli Chef study, they also looked at a variety of other studies. Some of them included this one called Polyvix study, and that one was the one by Pallada Chiaroli in 2013, and also the Woman with Bisexual Male Partners study. So from all of these studies, they were able to identify common trends in the cumulative findings, both inside polyamorous families and the pressures they face in the external world. So findings internal to families indicate a free-range parenting style. That's something that Eli Chef talked about. Collaborative parenting and permeable family boundaries with the extended chosen kinship. And issues external to poly families include disclosure and exposure, impacts of coming out to children, yeah, and also interactions with health, welfare, legal systems, and media. So essentially, it just feels like, yeah, it, disclosure is tough, potentially, but within the poly families, they have like specific things that like free range parenting style and collaborative parenting and stuff like that, that seems to permeate across most of the families that they talk to and these yeah. studies. Yeah. And that this was published within a book about LGBTQ parent families. Yeah. And talking which about- is fascinating considering what that, that that was one of the things that they looked at initially that right. sometimes poly families were lumped in with. Yeah. And I think that was part couples. of their point of putting it in this book is to, cause this is a book for researchers, right? Yeah. So it's saying, Hey, if you're a researcher in this area, don't do that. This is an area that's separate. Mm-hmm. And is worth more, you know, worth taking a closer look at. And here's some stuff we've noticed, but like there needs to be more research. Yeah. And so I do cool. think that's kind of interesting to look at it as as almost more of like a, a guide for other researchers rather than we've really found a lot. It's more like here's some trends. Go, go, go yeah. learn more about it. <laughs> totally. Uh, and then this this last one here is a 2019 meta-analysis of existing research by Christian Kless. And this is called Polyamorous Parenting, colon, Stigma, Social Regulation, and Queer Bonds of Resistance. This was published in Sociological Research Online. Uh, so, so basically looking at the overall data again, was just trying to look at the existing study and trying to focus on, you know, what are we, what are we finding? We're looking at the parenting practices. We're looking at social and legal discrimination. And then we're looking at the parental response to that stigmatization. Hmm. And Overall, they're arguing for just stronger incorporation of queer perspectives within the guiding frameworks for research. And we're starting to see more of that, as we've mentioned in some of our previous studies, but basically just saying like, hey, this is a big area that's lacking here. Mm -hmm. So they then went and broke it down by a few different categories overall. So first one was about parenting practices. And the findings from this meta-analysis were that in the existing research, the most common form of polyfamily seems to be an open couple with children, and then mm. this constellation of people around them. You know, sure. other partners, yeah. some biological, some chosen family, all of that. That that seems to be the most common arrangement. And while some of the polyfamilies consider their parenting a form of resistance to gender normative regimes, uh, that generally in practice they they still tend to perpetuate a lot of the sort of gender divisions of labor in mm-hmm. their care networks and things like that interesting yeah was that, that was what the researchers said about 
their findings or like their observation of these people or was that self-reported? Their observations about what they noticed Mm, in looking at all these different existing studies of, you know, what's out there currently. Yeah. Um, They found that the parenting strategies tend to reflect the values of polyamory, which includes, you know, radical honesty, consent, self-knowledge, self-possession, integrity. They found that those tended to show up in parenting as well. And that um, non-sexual relationships showed up as an important kind of designation of a type of chosen kin, which I do think is cool that that people tend to focus so much on the sex with non-monogamy. But it's like once you unlock that idea that relationships can look different ways, Mm -hmm. also opens up kind of these other non-sexual relationships too. Uh, So the next uh, category they looked at was the benefits. So what are the benefits of polyamory in parenting? So uh, enhanced potential for intimacy with children, I think because of that increased level of honesty, mm. kind of that like we're, we're not pretending, <laughs> you know, we're right, just going to yeah, be real yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, better ability to meet the challenges of child rearing by sharing work, sharing skills, sharing money, other resources. That's something that came up before as well. Uh, multiple incomes can also help in times of crisis. Uh, or times when someone needs to take a time out, such as just getting burned out or a mental right. health issue or an illness or a disability, something like that. Uh, and that generally the adults fa- felt less isolated when they were taking care of the kids because there were just more other adults around mm-hmm. to help out. And that there were more role models for the children. So those overall from the studies were the benefits that they noticed. And then challenges or problems with polyamory and parenting One is that children are affected by breakups, especially if they have a close bond with, you know, long-term parenting type partner, which makes a lot of sense. This also shows up in monogamous relationships too, but I guess the idea is maybe it would happen more often or at least has the potential to if there's just more partners. Household crowding, which I'm like, yeah, (laughs) they noticed that this especially came up with teenagers, who oh, want privacy and there's just too yeah. many adults around. Oh, yeah. Get out of here. That. <laughs> yeah. Jealousy among siblings. And they said this was particularly in blended and mixed parentage situations. So maybe if there's some jealousy about like which parents pay more attention to certain kids mm-hmm. or something, I imagine. Mm-hmm. The kids having to adjust to different parenting styles at different times. I know as you know, a kid growing up in a divorced family, you deal with that too. Of that like, oh, okay, here's the rules at dad's place and here's the rules at mom's place are a little different. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. Just in general, family complexity, just that there's more networks and certain things that happen can have ripples across more different relationships. Uh, they mentioned adult drama that can happen, which again, I think could happen in any relationship, but just that there were situations where all the extra communication and just sort of relational intensity translated to more frequent arguments. And then also, of course, negative reactions from their extended family which, or their family of origin. You know, if one of their parents is from a divorced monogamous marriage previously or something like that. And then stigma, kids being stigmatized in school or things like that. The last couple sections in this meta-analysis were looking at the social and legal problems and then how people managed stigma. So under the social and legal problems, uh, again, is 
just the socio-legal precarity of polyfamilies is the term that they used, which basically just means there's no protections at all for this type of family. And that's something that we've talked about a lot that sucks. There's the this bias toward couple-based two-person legal unions and just that there's no sorts of protections. And even in some states, laws that could be interpreted to be directly against consensual non-monogamy, which were meant to be anti-bigamy laws, but could be used against people in consensually non-monogamous relationships. Also, you know, the risk of losing custody of children if an ex-spouse or some family member decides to try to press that or use that against you. And then also talking about how racism can show up and be amplified by non-monogamy, that already existing racist ideas about responsibility or commitment or sexuality or something like that can get essentially enhanced when used against people who are in polyamorous families. And then when it comes to stigma management, this was looking at specifically passing. So the ability for families to just kind of pass as not being anything different from just a normal nuclear family. Uh, And then bordering and polluting were the other terms Mm. they talked about. So, So let's talk about that here. Yeah, what is that? So in this context, passing means just not revealing the polyamorous aspect of the family constellation by not emphasizing the amorous or sexual part of the adult relationships or by disguising multiple parenthood. It's kind of disguising the fact that maybe different kids in this household have different parents. This is generally regarded as the most suitable response to protect the family unit and the well-being of the younger children was what they found in this meta-analysis. And then bordering, which was described as mediating carefully the different behavioral requirements and or possibilities of different public and private spheres. I see. So yeah, the idea of this is what we can talk about at school. This is what we can talk about at home. This is what we can talk about when we go to Mima's house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Good old Mima. Mm -hmm. So that careful balancing and negotiation of shape-shifting and calculated acts of risk-taking resulting in temporary relief and emergence of spaces for self-expression. So that sort of push-pull between here's where we can be ourselves and here's where we've got to cover things up. Wow. Yeah, that's tough for kids, I'm sure. Right. Just tough for people in general, but absolutely. Yeah. Added layer with you're a small child. Right. Right. I mean, I feel like I had to do that for so long with with some of my grandparents about how mm. frequently we went to church or not. Sure. You know, that they were already sort of things that had to be a little bit hidden, but this is kind of taking it to another level. And then polluting. So here's a quote from the study. Other families take a more radical or militant approach of polluting that includes acts of self-assertion, non-compliance, or transgression aimed at politicizing public environments. So this is sort of the opposite is polluting is coming in and, and making it clear like, no, we're going to cause some trouble and we're going to show that this is what we're doing and we're going to transgress some of these rules in these public environments like schools, social services, and local authorities about being polyamorous and kind of bringing those things up. So that's interesting that, that you know, the passing side or the, what they called polluting side 
are sort of yeah, the two extremes. come up with a better term I know. than polluting? Good, good, good. I know. Yeah, it's not that's great. not great. No. <laughs> not great. <laughs> I mean, I get what they're going for, but surely something more positive thing. exists. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting that passing's on the one side where you're just like, let's just hide this completely. Polluting is where like, no, we're going to we're going to tell the world clear and we're going to tell the world and we're going to try to make some social change and then bordering, which is this mix, right? Of, well, mm. we're going to hide it in some places and we're going to be open about it in others. Wow. Really, really interesting looking at all this and clearly an area where a lot more research could be done because that was the takeaway with all these meta analyses is we're just scratching the surface and there's a lot yeah. more that needs to be done. Yeah. Wow. Well, what a big old ball of research we just like dove into between <laughs> these two episodes. That Look was at a all lot. the research out there on yeah, no, so much more than there was a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. And th- I mean, and this is also far from uh, completely inclusive of all the research that does exist. Like there's dozens and dozens and dozens and I mean, actually really hundreds more studies. It's just these are kind of the most prescient and recent and interesting ones that we thought that we might present to all y'all. So we hope that this is helpful. Again, as a reminder, if you go to multiamory.com slash sources, we're going to be including the summaries of all of these studies there. So if you want to take a look or if you want to find a link back to the original study, then that's where you can find them. So folks, on our Instagram for this week, we want to hear from you. Have you ever participated in a research study on non-monogamy? I feel like considering all the research that we just went through, chances are really high at least one of y'all probably in our listener base (laughs) took part. So yeah, have you ever done it? And what was your experience? The best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. This episode was researched by M. Mays and Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.